Well, first thing first, Steve, how are you today? I'm doing great. If things get any better, I'm going to explode, I tell you. <laughs> That's very good to hear. So where I want to start with is uh, in the past couple of years, you had an injury to your shoulder, to your thumb, I believe, and you had surgery for both. What did you learn about yourself, both as a guitar player and as a, as a human being, uh, when these two things, when kind of one limb was taken away from you? Well, that it, it pays to listen to your body, you know, uh, that was the first thing because the, I think the shoulders started years ago and it was something I was experiencing when I was working out and I let it go. And to the point where I kind of crossed a point of no return where therapies and wasn't gonna, weren't going to work and they had to get in there and, you know, fix it. And they did, and they did a great job. And, uh, uh, and it healed, and I made inviolate. Uh, unfortunately, uh, over the summer, I, I tore another tendon. Okay. Yeah. And that's why we had to move the uh, American leg of the tour to the fall. Okay. You know, because uh, I have to get another surgery. But it's all right. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not worried about any of that. What else I learned was I'm very resilient. <laughs> Well, that, that's what I was going to uh, allude to because, uh, well, obviously there's there, there might be initial panic and going, okay, how is this going to get fixed? But you, I think, quickly moved to, okay, but what can I do? So was that how the whole Inviolent uh, album kind of started? Inviolent. Uh, Inviolent, sorry. Yeah. No. Um, what I noticed is I didn't panic. There was never a time where I thought, well, there was there was a moment after I got the sling off where I started to try to play and there was nothing there. You know, I couldn't pick. I couldn't strum. And I thought, OK, this is what it's like at the end of the day for a musician, you know, and I that for about 10 seconds, that thought. This is it. I'm done. You know, that was in my head. And I can honestly tell you that um, with that thought, there wasn't any fear, but there was a disappointment, of course, you know. But I don't define myself as just a guitar player, you know. People say music is your life, right? Music isn't my life. Music is something I do in life. Life is much bigger than what you do in it, you know. I mean, there's so I never felt uh, restricted in expressing creative musical ideas, even if I didn't have a guitar, you know, and I always knew that that would that was going to be there no matter what. So I, I wasn't devastated. But then another little voice came in, the voice of my higher self. It usually comes in to the rescue. And it said, shut the fuck up and just start playing. You know, you got this. <laughs> and I said, okay, <laughs> yes, sir. And I just started and it came back. There, there's a couple of things that I find very interesting about what you just mentioned. One of the things is in a previous interview years ago with us, you talked about um, that guitar playing never came natural to you, but composing did. So is this kind of what you mentioned, that you always uh, had to have this ability to to compose music, to, to get a creative idea in your mind to something tangible? Absolutely. That's always been at the crux of my impulses since as long as I can remember. Of course, along with that is also the desire to just wail on the instrument. Okay. Always wanted that. Always loved the idea of just effortlessly shredding that motherfucker. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and um, uh, I did my best on that, but it was also coupled with the desire for meaningful music, you know? So I can, I can sit here and go, and I can record myself singing that, right? 
and I can write without a guitar an entire orchestra piece of music just based on that little thing I just sang. And I find that very compelling. You know, I, I love doing that. So I love playing the guitar, but there's going to come a day where I'm not going to, it's just not going to really be there, you know, and that's fine because there's other things that are there. Where did this side for you originate? Because I do remember reading that you, when you were younger, uh, started quite early with recording things and kind of documenting what you uh, were doing. What were those first kind of compositions like? And then I don't know if you ever listened to them or if they're still somewhere, but. Well, in the very beginning, they were on the accordion because I was 10. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) Which is pretty silly sounding. Uh, But when I got the guitar, I had a cassette recorder and I was like 12 or 13. And I just started like, I mean, it's horrific sounding stuff. You know, it's just a kid learning how to play. And uh, it's fun to listen to sometimes. But you can I have some recordings through the years. Not a lot. Um, I was a terrible player when I was young. You know, I, uh, I could connect enough. But it always seemed like everybody around me was much better than me. Which was actually good, you know, because it helped me to uh, improve. You could pull yourself up. uh, There's always somebody that's going to do that for you. You just have to look for it, which was, which I wanted to mention. I forgot to mention based on your previous question. In situations where you're confronted with a challenge, you have a choice of how you decide to perceive that challenge. This is your choice. It's only ever your choice. So the way that you perceive a challenge is directly joined at the hip with the results you're going to have, right? This isn't debatable. If you look at a challenge and you say, this sucks, let's say you're a musician and your perspective is this sucks, they suck, uh, the, the 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 industry sucks because it's holding me back. I can't make any money. They're only playing crap on the radio. Nobody knows how great I am. You know, all these kinds of perspectives are your way of looking at, not your way, some people's way, sure, sure, sure. <laughs> of looking at a challenge. So when when you have that kind of attitude, the results are going to be reflected in your attitude. So you're only going to get more shit thrown at you. You understand? Because that's what you're looking for. You're looking, you're looking for things that are holding you back, that you believe are holding you back. They're not, but you believe they are. So this is the issue. It's what, it's how, it's what you choose to believe in what you're seeing. Because I would say to somebody, it doesn't matter if you live in Bulgaria and nobody around you understands what you're playing. None of that actually matters. Everybody in Bulgaria doesn't. And I'm referring to a Bulgarian fan that wrote and said, there's no opportunity here. And, and that's a perspective that there's no opportunity here. OK, when you believe that that's what you're going to find, because that's what you'd be looking for. But the hard thing for people to understand is how easy it is to shift your perspective. Instead of saying there's no, there's no uh, opportunity here. You say, I know there's opportunity here. I'm just not seeing it, but I know it's here and I'm, I'm determined to find it. And that opportunity might be a plane ticket to another place, you know, who knows. But the moment that you turn your gaze to seeing how things can serve you and how you can serve them. The moment you do that, you will start seeing those things, but all too often people create a barrier to those things based on their um, uh, defeatist victim perspective and they believe it. So that's the problem. You know, they, whatever you believe is good. You're going to find you're going to find the evidence of it in the world. But if you change your belief 
You'll find the evidence of that. But people don't believe that. They think, nope, nope, this is the way it is, and that's the way it is, and I can make believe that it's differently, but it's not going to change. So how, how, how well are you going to do with that attitude? Yeah, as you said, you're kind of uh, making it easy for yourself. You're giving yourself excuses in that sense uh, when you do so. And for, with what no, you you're making it hard for yourself when you give yourself excuses. You make right. it easy for yourself when you decide to look for um, solutions. It becomes easy. The hard thing is shifting. Mm. Well, what gave you, especially early on in your career, then, what gave you the confidence for this shift? Or what, what made you determined to, to pursue all these things and to look for, the, for solutions rather than, than see obstacles? The alternative was killing me, literally. Mm. You know, when I was young, 20, 21, 22, I was uh, very cynical. I had a very negative perspective of the world and the people. I was hanging out with Frank Zappa, you know, and, and although Frank had this unbelievable wit and ability to uh, balance situations with the right comment, he was also a lover of life. And I, I also I, I didn't realize then that he liked people, mm. <laughs> uh, you know, and at, at 18, 19, 20 years old, working with someone like that, when they're criticizing everybody and everything you develop an attitude of that it i i allowed myself to develop an attitude you know um mm. and as a result the world became a not a fun place you know and, and it created a lot of mental uh suffering so that was the impetus for the change in perspective the intense mental suffering of a negative perspective Okay, that's what depression is. It's the entertaining of useless, unnecessary negative thoughts in your head that you believe. So when I discovered that the choice is mine and it can't be anybody else's, that's when I discovered that the quality of my life is my responsibility. And it's based on how I choose to see the world. So my perspective started to change. It became more friendly. Mm. And everything changed as a result. Doesn't mean that I still don't have challenges and I didn't go through, some, you know, but you, you, you view your challenges differently. With that in mind, then, did that, especially around that time, as you were kind of coming out of that, uh, yeah, that darker period of your life, then uh, did that kind of re, uh, how, how would you say that, reignite the flame uh, as a guitar player? Or was, was that always a constant throughout? Is real music dying? What even is real music and who are we to judge that? Well, my father is a lifelong musician and together we've been making music for over a decade. In our new podcast, we dare to ask the urgent, the weird and the deep questions. And we have a lot of wild stories to tell. No matter what genres you enjoy, whether you're a musician, a producer or a listener, we invite you to discover unconventional perspectives on music. So tune in and go follow Mad Makings of Music wherever you listen to podcasts. There was always a, a, an excitement about playing the guitar, but the ability for me to focus on something uh, constructive and creative, that grew tremendously uh, when I moved to Silmar. Uh, it was a little home that I built a studio in and I recorded Flexible. And the, the recording of Flexible was an unbelievably cathartic experience for me because I started it basically when I was coming out of this deep, dark depression and I was finding light, you know, I had no obligations. I had no desire to, to be famous, really. I had no bands. I was totally left to my own. And I lived on a property with people I loved 
and 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 we had a, an amazing little community and we just played music and i built this little studio and it became i, I started to with all the esoteric reading i was doing at the time i was going through serious trans uh, transitions mm-hmm. and um this flowed into the music so when you listen to flexible there's this innocence and naivete in it that was part of my rebound do you know what i mean um so what was the question i want to make sure i answered it no no i can continue on this because this is uh great what you're talking about because um this sense of uh innocence then and uh, perhaps a naivete is is that something then that that you try to recapture from a creative standpoint uh whenever you do a project yeah Absolutely. And there was periods of time, huge periods of times that I went through where I didn't do that. Mm. You know, I, I, I followed convention to a degree and that never really worked entirely for me. Uh, but as you get older, your perspectives change. And the greatest perspective change for me was on my own freedom, my, my, my own ability to record unencumbered with expectation that's big that that if you can acquire a frame of mind that has no fantasy expectation in it for some future time then you can unleash your creative potential in this moment you know in the moment that you're actually creating you know so what i discovered was I don't have to have any expectations except to do the best I can right now and, and make the enjoy what I'm doing right now. Just enjoy it. So, so that's, that's how all the good stuff happens for somebody because when there's expectations, you're trying to second guess something you, you just don't know anything about. You can't. I mean, sure. In some situations, this is the rock community. I'm making this record for them. You know, my music doesn't follow anything like that now. It's just like this is what I want to do. It falls into a rock uh, category, I might assume, because, sure. you know, I like rock and it's heavy and, you know, but. Um, I don't have any expectations to. Uh, uh, placate an audience. You know, like I don't set out to say uh, this is going to blow everybody away. And, you know, th- this this is uh, better than what anybody has done. I, I don't really set out to do that. What I set out to do is. Is to. Manifest my creative ideas, the ones that are exciting to me, I get an idea and I go, yeah, I want to do that. Yeah. And then I just do it. What I find I'm very interesting about kind of those ideas that come to the uh, forefront for you is that they're always kind of pushing the boundaries or innovative in a sense. Um, so, so why is that, do you think? Why, why do you always try to seek out new things in a way? I mean, you could shred, maybe is, is it just uh, uh, boredom otherwise? It's just fun. Mm. You know, you, you you get a visual for something and then you you see, you, you know that, okay, so for instance, on this record, when I picked up the guitar, I've been doing a lot of interviews, so I don't know if I'm repeating myself. You'll have to I forgive me. <laughs> when I was doing Knapsack, which was a song I played entirely with one hand, um, <clears throat> the moment I put the guitar on and I started just fretting some notes, a very compelling and exciting idea just went boop, just like that. And, and what it was, was you're going to make a song with one hand and you can do it. That's not, it's not, it's fascinating for people that don't play the guitar for people that play. If you have a legato technique like me and you're tapping a lot, it's not that difficult. You know, of course you got to work it out. Um, So when that idea came, there was no, sure, at the back of my mind, I was saying uh, there might have been, well, if I can pull this off, some people are going to get a big kick out of it, you know. But 
really, it was just a compelling, fun idea. And that was enough. You know, I like I didn't say, OK, now I'm going to blow everybody away now. So like when the Hydra, the, the, the guitar, the Hydra and performing a piece of music on it, writing a piece of music. The whole the idea for the entire thing came in one download. You know, it was like, ah, oh, I got it. I want to I want to make a guitar with three necks and I want to write a piece of music that's got a, a beautiful melody and it, it's got to sound like a great piece of music by itself, you know, and it's going to integrate. So I, I, it was all that. It was so exciting. I didn't, I can't for me to like call somebody <laughs> up and say, Hey, I got an idea. Let me know if you think this is a good idea. I want to build a guitar. Blah, 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 and they, they might say, well, you know, I don't do that. <laughs> you know, it's like, if it's good for me, it's good enough. And right. that's what it should be for you. Now, when I say you, I'm talking about all of us. Sure. Now, advice is seldom relished. <laughs> Opinions are disdained. But with some clarity on your part, you can receive constructive criticism and, 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 and valuable opinions that resonate with you, that then you incorporate that can change what you do. But only you will know if those opinions or whatever are where they're coming from in a person. Sure. You know what I mean? So well, you, you, have to, okay. you have to be able to not take anything personally. A, a, a thought just popped into my head, and I don't know if this is a good question or not, but how do you distinguish between what is a genuine idea and what is not? Everybody has a uniquely creative nature. There's something that you do in your life that w when you're doing it, you're enjoying it. You, you actually feel enthusiasm. You have no fear about the future. You, you don't have any expectations. You're connected. You're connected to something in, a, in an organic way that feels natural and joyful to you when you're doing it. That's your function. And this function it varies as much as there are people on the planet. So when you can find that thing that you love doing and you can make a career out of it, you know, you, you don't need much really because the joy of the, of the work is the fulfillment that really is, you know, because your economics are going to change through life. You're going to have things that you want. You're going to buy things you don't even want. You're not going to have things that you want. All that's going to continue to fluctuate. But the fulfillment you feel when you are expressing your uniquely creative potential is fulfilling on a deep level. So when you're engaged in that, the product that you create, the feeling flows into it, mm -hmm. you know? So... Uh, when you're doing this thing that you love, you receive inspiration. You receive inspiration. It, it can come in many different forms. You, you can see something that somebody's doing. You can hear something that somebody's doing that inspires you. Ideas can arise just out of nowhere, seemingly nowhere. But in any event, these natural organic ideas that the universe is inspiring in you that are natural for you, you know that these are your organic ideas because when they come, they're accompanied by the feeling of enthusiasm. Mm -hmm. They're accompanied by the aha moment. Ah, yeah, I'm going to do that, you know? So there's no stress in the manifesting, in the process of reaching the goal. It's a joy every step of the way. You're enjoying the, pro of course, there's challenges. Of course, you might be, you know, having to, you know, take care of business, but still you, you're enjoying the process. Okay, so that's a natural 
inspiration idea that the universe has given you specifically for you. And here's the, here's the kicker in that. Any idea that the universe can inspire in you that gives you that feeling of enthusiasm that you feel is exciting to you, it will give you the means to manifest it. Mm. It must. This is what it does. This is what it wants to do. The universe wants you to do that. It wants you to be yourself, your natural creative self, without comparing what you do with what other people do. You see, it doesn't care about that. It just cares that you are in the in the state of joy when you're creating. Okay, so conversely, an egoic fantasy is an idea. It's a thought that that people have about the future. It's usually a projection into a future period where once I once I get there, once I'm recognized as being great and I have all the awards and I, I'm on the covers of the magazines and I got all the money and people people worship me and know how great I am, then I can be happy. OK, so this this is a, a very common belief in people's minds about creating a future. Now, of course, you have to be responsible for your economics and sure. plan to some degree. I'm not saying you neglect all that. What I'm saying is when you have fantasy uh, uh, goals, the way that you know that they're fantasy is there's resistance in them. You're usually complaining through the whole process. So if it takes a year, let's say your goal is to be a totally a, 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 a worldwide loved and adored guitar virtuoso. <laughs> Uh, and and you you have to practice a lot, a lot, a lot. If it's a natural instinct, there's no discipline required in the process. It's all passion. You you don't need anything to tell you to do it. It's you do you just nothing's going to stop you. A fantasy egoic goal. You're usually fighting through the whole process. You're blaming people for why. You're not where you believe you need to be. You're blaming people for not doing what you expect them to do. And you're uh, being critical. And uh, it's it's kind of like a, a grind, you know. And here's the, here's a funny thing that happens. Let's say you had a goal that in, in 10 years from now, I have to be a successful musician. How do you feel when you say that? Does it is there like a a resistance in it like it's a it's a it's it's a goal but you don't know you don't know if you're going to be a successful famous musician or not so you can work for 10 years and you it may never happen and what happens when it's an egoic fantasy goal you start blaming everybody else for why it didn't happen you know because of the industry sucks whatever the fill in the blank I got I can show you the, the tons of emails I get from people giving excuses and and worse, you can become successful <laughs> because then what happens is and this happens all the time. It's not enough. It still isn't enough. If it's not enough now, it's not going to be enough later because you take your miserable self with you. <laughs> you understand sure. what I'm saying? Sure. So if it's not enough now. It's not going to be enough later. Now, th this isn't this isn't I don't mean to disrespect anybody here, but I read this one thing. I, don't, I, I, I read it. I don't know if it's true, but who would you say is the most famous, successful musician in the world right now? Right now? Mm -hmm. uh, maybe somebody like X year. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe Paul McCartney. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Still, probably. He's the richest, you know, so, as what they say. I read something once where he was lobbying to change the order of the names on right. some of the Beatles songs from Lennon and McCartney to McCartney and Lennon. OK. It's not enough. <laughs> OK, so the, the ego and it's, I'm sure he's a very content guy and we love him. 
but the, the ego is insidious and uh, elusive. It does things like that. <laughs> right. Okay. So, so you take who you are wh wherever you go. And, and like I say, I'm not dissing Paul McCartney. Sure, sure, sure. That just stuck out to me as a little example of the elusiveness. And I could be totally wrong. You know, this is just me. So sure, sure. another thing that happens if you fight for 10 years and you actually get a hit song, usually the, 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 uh, the product that you created, if it doesn't come from your true creative nature, you can actually resent that it made you famous. We see this too. And another thing that happens when you wake up 10 years later, and if you're unfortunate enough to have had the success, <laughs> Or, or I don't know, you know, it's relative. <laughs> sure. uh, you, you, you realize that you feel the same. And uh, you also realize that all of this security that you believed you were acquiring is nebulous. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a mirage, you know, it, it, it's the security that you're looking for is not in money or fame or anything like that. Those things can be nice. They can be a real challenge for some people, you know, but uh, the 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 fulfillment you're looking for is now right now in those creative things that you do that are compelling for you. It's interesting that you said it because I. Uh... From one of your podcasts, there, there, there was uh, a question posed, guy. Well, what is the most important question to ask yourself at any moment? And this is how do I feel right now? So is that kind of what you base everything off then? That whatever project you do, whatever tours you, you go on? I mean, I, I think you're uh, working on a vocal album as well, acoustic uh, vocal album. Um, so is that whatever just in that moment feels right for you, that's what you're going to pursue? Well, a person has to decide um, how they ha only a person can decide how they want to feel. You know yeah. what I mean? And a lot of people are addicted to drama and that's uh, a very uh, caustic state. Right. And I recognize that. So the reason why I say the most important thing is how you feel The way you feel is a reflection of the quality of the thoughts you're thinking in your head, right? So it's also important to understand, and I know this is a re real tricky one, is you can't give something that you don't have. Mm. Right? We believe that it's virtuous to give, 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 and neglect ourselves, you know? Well, uh, If you don't have respect for yourself, you, you can't really effectively support others. So when, when you, well, I guess that, that's, that says it, you know, when, when you like yourself <laughs> and when you are feeling good, then you can be of assistance to others because sure. then you have something you can give them. So... <clears throat> The way that you feel is of the greatest value because based on that, you don't have you, you only have access to actions and thoughts based on the way you feel. So when you feel good, uh, you're, you're in a state of like flow. You know, you're just in a really great, creative, productive state of flowing. And this is all based on the quality of the thoughts you're thinking. So the most important thing is to be able to back up your attention and recognize the quality of thoughts that you're thinking. You might recognize that all of them have some kind of foundation in the past or the future. Okay. When you give your attention to the present moment, And this is why I say you can only really be happy now. <laughs> mm -hmm. When you do that, you're living life. You're, you're living life to its fullest right now. So that's what's important. That's really what's important because all your ideas stem from the way you feel. All your participation with others 
stems from the way you feel. All of your ability to contribute uh, to others and to, to yourself is based on how you feel. And most importantly, the way you view yourself is based on how you feel. Well, I should say most importantly is the recognition that only you are in charge of the quality of thoughts you want to think. This is very obvious, right? What is the one freedom that you have? The one true freedom. It's, it's like Descartes said, right? I think therefore I, I am almost. It's a, that's, that's the only thing you, you're guaranteed, at least. You're guaranteed to be able to think whatever thought you want. Right. Yeah. And that the thoughts you think create the world you engage in. No. Going back to the record then, because I, I'm sure people would like to hear about the music as well. I know. You know, I'm doing so much press these days and, <laughs> and I have a tendency to go off into these no. esoteric uh, things. I'm sure people are like, oh, no, not another violin. <laughs> no, no I, I love those conversations, but I, I also have to. Uh, yeah, you got to talk about the record. Steer, steer towards the music. The, the, the one that I really uh, well, there's a couple I really enjoyed on the album, and it, it's a very diverse uh, set of songs, I would say, uh, mixed with all kinds of influences. Uh, but the one I really enjoy uh, is Avalancha. So, so what was the um, starting point of that song for you? Well, Avalancha was a, a, a track I had written a while ago. It was actually slated for the Real Illusions album. Okay. Uh, but at the time, I, and I had the I had the track, the drums and the bass recorded. So it's Billy Sheehan on bass, and um, I had to. I was balancing the record out in my mind, and I had to kind of make a choice between building the church and Avalancha. And for real illusions, I to- I chose building the church, and I put Avalancha on the shelf. But it was there, and I knew it was there, and I really wanted to flesh it out. And for the new record, that's what I did. How, how, I don't know how to properly formulate this question, but how do you kind of, in the moment, open yourself up for that kind of uh, work? Are you somebody who kind of hammers uh, at it? Are you in the studio every day trying to figure that out? Or is it something that you kind of, you have to wait for the right mood, right, right uh, uh, yeah, mindset, and then it kind of comes out naturally? Usually that you got to, for me, at least, you know, I think people who are like geniuses, they're they're connected all the time, all the time. You know, I I have to wait for the gods of inspiration to sprinkle some fairy dust on me, but they do. And um, occasionally what I what I do is. um, I'll just be like playing, you know. And I'll come across something that seems to have some energy in it. And I, I document it on my iPhone. And what's so interesting to me is I can go back and hear that. And, and the DNA for an entire piece of music is in it. You know, so like um, I had uh, on my, I called my infinity shelf because there's so many little snippets of ideas. I was doing, uh, I picked up the guitar and I started to go. And as soon as I did those changes, something in me said, oh, that's kind of nice, you know. So immediately you engage in that tonal atmosphere. So you're you're making an emotional investment in what you're hearing. And the moment you start doing that, your ear can take over and tell you where to go based on your um, uh, tendencies, you know, so from my tendencies and my ear led me to and as soon as I did that, I'm like, whoa, that's cool. Where does it want to go after that? So this was was my process of, of writing uh, the song Little Pretty. So that's all I had was that. Okay. No. And but I knew the whole that you could feel the atmosphere of it, right? Sure. So if I go back and I put the little tape in and I hear that, I'm right back. I'm right back in it. And and then I and that's what I did with Avalanche. That was just like a riff. 
that was um, uh, Zeus and Change. That was like that. Uh, Candle Power, Avalancha, um, Little Pretty. And the rest came different ways. Well, yeah, I was going to ask, how about Sandman, uh, Cloud Mist? Because that's that's uh, that's a different kind of playing. I, I would say, yeah. but maybe maybe I'm wrong in this because I'm not. Oh no, uh, it's very well different. But, but but yeah, what goes in? Is that more emotion? Is that more of a? Uh, yeah, I, I I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you, Robin. But you have to wait a minute. I, I got to run to the restroom. Okay. Oh yeah, no worries. But if, you have if all you have the time. time Well, you've I'm been very you generous already, so so uh, I'm giving you all the time you need. Perfect. But just give me Thank a minute. You. Yeah, yeah, no worries. So what I what I usually do when I'm uh, recording a song, a solo, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of times what I do is I I loop it and I just keep playing, you know, jamming, jamming, jamming until something interesting happens, you know, that I feel is interesting, and then I kind of will work on that technique. Because usually it's kind of like a, a technique or something, you know, and um, then I record it. And so the so a lot of times my solos are kind of some of it's thought out because I, I want to introduce new techniques. And usually that's hard for me to do on the fly. Sure. <laughs> you know, it happens, but, you know, not as much as I'd like. Um And then um, I work on it until it sort of becomes part of my vocabulary. But a lot of times I just sit and play, you know, I just jam. And I like to keep a balance there because when, when I just sit and improvise, all of the little techniques that I worked on start to show themselves organically. And that's always nice. That, that always expands your playing a bit. So... Um, With Sandman Cloud Mist, I was doing this event called the Big Mama Jama Jamathon, <laughs> where the music didn't stop for like 58 hours or something crazy. <laughs> and I had to, I, I wanted to write a whole bunch of chord changes that that could be looped. So I made a simple little loop of these chord changes that I liked. And I would use it, I, I got, I have hundreds of them you know and i just put them on and i jam when i'm warming up or if i'm working something out and uh i had written sandman cloud mist change changes and created a little loop and we used it at the jamathon and i thought that the changes were really nice and i started hearing a melody in it mm. so i was working on a uh alien guitar secrets patreon upload <laughs> and it was about delay okay. it's really fantastic actually it's like a hour and a half or two hour class that i give on delay and i you, you learn everything about how they work the different kinds all this kind of stuff so part of the uh, video on that was me just sitting and jamming on sandman cloud mist i i probably improvised without any like figuring stuff out for about 20 minutes. And then I chopped it down to six minutes and I made Sandman and used that for um, this Patreon class and it's uploaded online. But when it came time to put it on the record, I wasn't quite sure at first, but then I thought th this is a valuable track because it's all improv. It's just totally you know, five, five or six minutes of Steve just riffing, you know? And uh, I thought that's a nice, it would be nice to have that kind of space on the record. So I also knew I didn't want to have it as a loop, you know, the track. So it was fantastic. I, I sent the track to um, Vinny Kaliuta and he did an amazing job putting the drums on it. I sent it to Henrik Linder, bass player it, usually with dirty loops guys a freakazoid and he just laid down the most beautiful bass part i sent it to my friend dave rosenthal to put the keyboards on I'm trying to think if i got everybody 
I think that's it. But um, so that's how that song came about. It's really just pure improv. Okay. With the little melody in the front and back. Okay. Well, that's very interesting. I, I love hearing about how uh, the creative process goes. So thank you so much for sharing uh, some of it. Um, there's a couple of questions that, that are more general in a, in a sense and, and have a little bit to do of, uh, with where I'm from, which is the Netherlands. Now, I read that in or this year, actually, uh, you're planning on uh, playing or recording with the Metropole Orchestra here in the Netherlands. Yeah, I'm so excited. This was the one project that uh, uh, that had to get postponed like three times. Right. And uh, okay, so basically, look, give me one moment. Okay, so basically, when I was young, I wanted to be a composer. When I was very young, you know, before I started playing the guitar, and when I had heard Frank Zappa's music, it really turned me on because I was really into rock music of the seventies and nobody was doing real compositional things, but Frank's music had everything, you know, it had like composition, it had a comedy, it had crazy guitar solos, it had beautiful melody, all this stuff. So that kind of helped me to, formulate the kind of thing I wanted to do because I thought, well, I can do it all. Why not? You know? So I, I loved composing and I did it all through the years, but it's very difficult to get your music performed when you're not a, a qualified composer <laughs> uh, or accepted composer. But I had a dear friend in the Netherlands, Ko de Klote, and Ko, um, I've known him. I met him through Frank. He was good. He was friends with Frank okay. and he worked at NPR and he came to me one day and he said, Steve, I think that you're a good guitar player, but I think that you're a better composer, <laughs> you know, and, and I think that there's a composer in you that nobody knows about and I'm determined to get it out of you. <laughs> so Cole, without, the, without his support, and help, I'd still be like a, a basement composer, you know, because he single-handedly uh, put on these five shows in the Netherlands with the Metropole Orchestra. And I composed all the music and we recorded visual sound theories, which was a, a DVD and uh, sound theories, which was a double live orchestra record. And that was my first orchestra uh, offering. And from it, and this was, uh, you know, Cole basically did the whole thing, you know. I mean, I, I composed it and all that, you know, uh, but he produced it. And from that gig came a lot of, that was, that opened the floodgates to the composing community, the classical community. Because I was as awkward in that community as I am as in the rock community, you know. It's kind of like, yeah, he's a rock guitar player, but he's Vi. It's weird. You know, <laughs> it's the same thing when I compose, you know, but it's good. <laughs> I, I was going to say, but you must get a lot, for, especially from uh, contemporaries and peers. You must get a lot of, uh, I don't know if respect is the right word, but respect. Uh, you must get, uh, get a lot of recognition from the people around you uh, for your ability, right? Most people don't know, you know, and it's fine. Uh the stuff I do with Co and the stuff that, so I'll just finish that story. Sure, sure. Uh, a lot of other opportunities came and I was being commissioned to compose pieces of music. And I wrote a, a, a large body of work through the years. And uh, a lot of it was performed. I wasn't really crazy with the recordings or the performance. So I decided to take all this music and with Co and our maestro, Juka Lissakilia, who is Finnish, brilliant maestro. Uh, he's the conductor. Uh, we created a little team, and the goal is to get all this music recorded. So we, we chose the Metropole for probably two hours worth of material that is suited for them because the, the Metropole is an adventurous kind of an orchestra. It's got young people. If you write improvise, they understand what it means, you know? 
but there's a couple of pieces that are very large symphonic pieces and very difficult, and they really require a full symphony. And uh, although they're not as hip and adventurous, they can make a symphonic piece of music breathe in a way that's uh, really appropriate for the music. So then we're going to go to Finland in August to record with their orchestra uh, more stuff. So at the end of the day, I'll have about four hours of this crazy orchestra music that, you know, <laughs> is really just my guilty pleasure. <laughs> oh, it's awesome that you get to do that. And then we get to get to realize that compositional uh, uh, ambition as well. Yeah, it really well, is. I love it. One final question. I'm sure you've answered this a uh, hundred times, but as, as somebody from the Netherlands, we kind of, uh, now that I have you, I have to ask, uh, Eddie Van Halen, uh, passed away, uh, 2020. You kind of were around when he was playing, obviously. Um, what did you initially make of him and, and did everybody kind of at the time realize, uh, the impact he would have? We realized the impact he was having then, you know, when he first hit the scene. I was um, probably in high school uh, or college when I first heard Eruption, and it just blew us all away. We couldn't understand it. it. It wasn't just the tapping. It was the rock and roll attitude in in the guitar parts, you know, the, the, the bulletproof supreme rhythm playing where every note in a chord explodes and they're in tune and they sound amazing. It was in his, um, his tone, you know, the, the, the way that he presented, he heard it in his head that way. And he presented the guitar on a silver platter, you know, and this was all very different for us at the time. You know, we had big, heavy guitars and all that kind of thing, but nothing as free sounding and effervescent and intense and f free, but solid, you know, and expansive as Edward, you know. So we didn't know then because he hadn't written all the sure. all the great songs that the band ended up writing, which created their legacy, you know. Uh, but yeah, it was a game changer. And for you, you obviously uh, played with David Lee Roth, and um, I don't know how to what extent you delved into into uh, all of their songs. But but did you kind of get to dissect what he was doing in a way? Well, yeah, I had to because. I was going out on tour playing his guitar parts and I wanted to pay respect to them, you know, because the fans want to hear that, <laughs> you know, those, his guitar parts are like completed orchestra arrangements in a way, you know, and they play so well. I mean, they're beautiful, beautiful guitar parts. And I wanted to get them as close as I could, you know, of course the solos and stuff, I, I just did my own thing. Steve, thank you so much. You've been uh, so generous. I can't uh, with your time. I can't thank you enough. Uh, My pleasure. Thank you so much for for a wonderful conversation.